Today, we'll start at the border where a series of major developments have pitted the Biden administration against a host of forces, including liberal advocacy groups, the Texas governor, and border towns. Then we'll tackle a series of new studies that may challenge the way you view social media and polarization. And finally, we'll discuss the dramatic drop in church attendance across the U.S. We'll talk about all of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. All right, Ricky, let's start at the border. We've got a ton going on here, just like I would say four or five overlapping stories. And I think the biggest piece here is back in May, we talked about certain Biden administration changes to the way they treated the border, the way they treated asylum cases, et cetera. And we predicted that there would be a drop actually in people trying to cross the border paradoxically, because at the time there was all of this sense that in rescinding Title 42, and and listeners can go back to that episode, we'll link to it in the show notes to to get a deep dive into what those changes meant, that in rescinding Title 42, that would actually lead to an increase in migrants, but actually it's been the opposite. And it's been pretty dramatic. Um, So as of May, uh, when these changes were announced, there were about 7,500 migrants trying to cross daily. Now it's down to 3,000, which is still historically high, but mm-hmm. dramatically lower than it was before. Uh, but there are storm uh, clouds on the horizon here. The uh, Last Tuesday, a federal judge ruled that Biden's changes to the asylum rules are illegal, and particular found that the uh, presumption that most migrants crossing illegally are ineligible for asylum, which was one of the many changes that Biden made, that that's illegal. Uh, other changes that Biden has done that some are crediting with with a change to the numbers of migrants trying to cross is they're funneling more uh, people into orderly points of entry, and they're also pushing more people towards this online application they have. And they actually have 30,000 migrants using the application in the month of May which is about the same amount of people who are trying to cross illegally. So you have about as many people trying to use the legal system as the illegal system right now. That plus like all the stuff we talked about, Title 42, where it used to be that you can kind of get kicked out without uh, consequence and then you can just try to cross again. Uh, now they're processing people, which we you know speculated could be more of a deterrent. It's hard to say, Ricky, what's going on here and, and how much of this could even be seasonal. Yeah, I think that's also, to your earlier point, important to point out that it's still a relative high. Like, just for example, if you look at the raw numbers of enforcement actions at the border um, by Border Patrol, it was, for the entire year of 2017, 500,000 incidents versus already year-to-date 2.3 million. So, obviously, some of that is before Title 42 was lifted, but, you know, it's just important to note that we're still crippled under the the wave of people that had already arrived here and these are still very very large numbers even so but it's yep. it's definitely a lot of border drama going on right now one thing that's particularly interesting is that the DOJ is suing Greg Abbott in Texas over a buoy uh floating barrier that he installed at the border without federal authorization I understand throwing any solution at the problem, but I'm a little bit unclear of how this is actually a meaningful solution considering it's only a thousand feet long. Um, It's in the border town of Eagle Pass. He put it out in early July. It's about four feet tall. It has webbing underneath, but it's still apparently possible to get around it. But it's just the length of it seems so negligible in the scheme of the border that I can't imagine that it really has 
that much of a difference. But um, yeah, Ricky, this is part of what's called Operation Lone Star, which is a $4 billion effort by the state of Texas going on $9 billion that has some bipartisan support, which I'll get to, which includes just increased Texas-based border enforcement. So razor wire at the border, the floating barrier that you discussed, busing migrants, uh, which seems to be, you know, it was painted as a sort of creature of the right, um, you know, months ago, but it seems to be widespread across the country, which is definitely something we'll come back to. And the DOJ is suing Texas, particularly about the floating barrier that you're talking about, alleging that they're flouting federal law and damaging U.S. foreign policy. And uh, this is an interesting area of law. I mean, I think it's intuitive to most listeners that the control of the border is usually under the purview of the federal government, and they can claim that authority at any time. And their sense is that, and this seems pretty standard, is that international rules and federal law regulate the construction of anything on navigable rivers. And so in this case, this is a navigable river, and they're asking them to put it down. Again, I think this is more of a symbolic fight that both Abbott and Biden kind of want right now, especially Abbott. I think like the efficacy, even if this is a very high like volume crossing area of the river, the efficacy of a you know thousand foot barrier is negligible compared to the symbolism and the politics of it all. I agree. I think it's kind of shocking to me that the DOJ would go after something as silly, in my view, as a thousand foot barrier um, over supposed humanitarian concerns, because it seems like something that you could quite literally just get around. And frankly, I think I don't blame I, I don't think it's an effective solution, but I think that Texas should, if they're the state that needs to deal with the the majority of the influx of migrants, that they should be able to implement their own solutions where possible. Um, and it's just, you know, the River and Harbors Act. I, I don't think that there, it's meaningfully obstructing any transit. As far as I'm aware, I've not heard of any issues with like ships trying to get through or anything like that. Like it just feels like a bad use of time considering that I do think the federal government does have a role in putting Texas in this situation. Um, you know, Abbott, to his credit, said that he will see Mr. President in court. And I'm not really sure what else he's supposed to do. Um, but, you know, I'd like to see the federal government change their six-month period for migrants who are here um, looking for asylum because they're not allowed to work for six months after they get here. And so wherever they end up, whether it's Texas or whether it's somewhere that um, they end up getting bussed off to, they're a burden on the local government in a way that is beyond their own control. I mean, I'm sure that many of these people would like to come and and fill those help wanted sign vacancies that we see in, in all major cities. And it's unfortunate that cities and, and Texas and cities around the country are being, uh, you know, stuck with people who are not able to work unless they want to violate federal law. Yeah. And I think that the politics for this work in Abbott's favor, a poll last month found that 59% of Texans backed law enforcement deployments and border increased boarding, border spending, including 30% of Democrats. And yeah. if you read some of the articles about this, there are a ton of conservative Democrats, especially in the border towns. There are a lot of like, you know, very heavy uh, Hispanic and Latino communities, for instance. Uh, and they interview a lot of those legislators who are generally in favor of this, but but do report that there are some issues with this Lone Star program, including reports of uh, harsh treatment and injuries from the razor wire. You know, the Abbott administration is quick to also, you know, brag about the fact that they've bussed 25,000 migrants to places that they want to go. 
And once again, I keep saying this, but we will come back to that particular part of this. It's worth noting that the Abbott administration is not really challenging the administration in any way that I find credible on the substantive grounds. There is an interesting constitutional argument that they made in a letter to the president. They cite section four of the constitution, which states, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion. So they're claiming that this invasion clause is that the federal government is not protecting them against, quote, invasion. And I'll just direct people in the show notes to a piece by Ilya Soman from Reason, where he argues, I think, quite persuasively that immigration is not an invasion and that this is charitably a stretch of the constitutional provision. And unless unless they get into some very, in front of some idiosyncratic judge, I don't see that being successful. I, I, will, I predict that the federal government will win in its challenge to this floating barrier. But by and large, the irony of this is I actually think that absent congressional action, both the state of Texas and Biden are doing everything they possibly can to try to stem this tide. And unless a bipartisan group of senators come together to fix our broken immigration system, this is about the best we could hope for. Yeah, it just does feel like too little too late from the Biden administration, at least. Like, I think that there's a lot of politicians, particularly on the left, that have been forced to wake up to the reality of more utopian visions of what an immigration system looks like or or being a, a sanctuary city looks like, which, you know, I'm definitely calling out Eric Adams on that front. Uh, he's the the situation here in New York City as a result of the busing has been pretty shocking. But before we, get, Ricky, before we get to Adams, I would love to hear when you say too little, too late from Biden. Tell me more, because from my reading, he's been quite aggressive, especially for a Democrat on border protection policies. And actually, his policies are not that much different than Trump's. I just think the the way that the press and the political establishment has kind of treated it as different. I think Abbott's a good example. It's not like Abbott was jostling with Trump about very similar policies. You know, like, as we predicted, Title 42, most people were, um, including on the right, were painting Biden's rescinding of 42 as some kind of pro-immigration measure where it's had at least the opposite effect for reasons that we described. Oh, yeah. No, I don't agree with that, certainly. But I think that, I think a lot of it is based on messaging, frankly, and giving people hope that if they cross the border or if they have a child here or like, I just, I think that a lot of it is permissive messaging and a sense that, that a democratic administration would rather than reform the rules, which I do think that he ultimately did, did make meaningful reforms to stem illegal immigration. But I think that there's a a sentiment that a democratic administration is more likely to just flout what restrictions are in place and being enforced by Republicans. And I, and I think that the, the swell of immigration during the beginning of his administration is at least in part based on that false hope. And I, I mean, I don't say that in a way that is gleeful, like I'm pro immigration and I feel bad that, that people are, you know, glomming onto any hope that they might get here and find a permissible um, safe place or sanctuary city. But I think that that's increasingly not a reality. And a lot of cities and states who have have said that they're open to anyone, open arms, no matter what, have now had to actually confront the reality as a result of these busing programs and unprecedented numbers. And 
you know, I think it's, it's easy. It's so easy to say when you're New York city and you're thousands of miles from the border and you're not dealing with the reality that, that someone in Texas is dealing with to say, Oh, we we're we're totally open arms and anyone's welcome here. But the, the reality when, when this utopianism just actually meets actual human beings arriving here in unprecedented numbers is quite different. Yeah. And you know, on the Biden front, I know this is not a debate about you know the Biden's messaging on immigration, but I've always found him to be quite measured on his messaging on immigration, including when you go back to the primary. Like he was definitely one of the most moderate people on immigration policy, even going back then. And his the messaging from his administration has been very cautionary from the get go about people crossing the border. I would I would lay the blame as much. You know, of course, there are people on the far left who have like as you label it utopian visions, but I would say like. I would blame as much of the messaging issues on people who exaggerate the Biden administration's policies, because that also is something that gets out into the ether. And if you're immigrants in other countries hearing from the American far right that Biden's going to have open border policies, that may influence you too. But I agree with your your assessment of New York, for example, and there's this great piece uh, by Jay Root that I want to turn to in the New York Times, where he paints New York City, um, you know, we've talked about this for a while, where we laid down the gauntlet months ago saying that if New York City truly is the sanctuary city that it has painted itself as, and this is where I think you and I agree, is that New York, and this is not necessarily true of Adams, but certainly true of most of the politicians, including New York City Council and most uh, elected officials in New York, have said that this is a welcoming place of immigrants, and it has a long and storied history of immigrants arriving here, including basically every side of my family arrived in New York City uh, in one form or another. Me too. And found work here. Uh, but what Jay Root describes in this Times article, uh, Ricky, is not very flattering to this so-called sanctuary city, the city of immigrants, the city of the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, I just to put some context here before we delve into that specifically, um, there have been 90,000 migrants that have arrived in New York and we're now at what seems to be a breaking point with Eric Adams quite literally shipping migrants out of the five boroughs to as far as Buffalo, putting them in in ho- motels. And it's a partnership that the New York Times has kind of blown the lid off of that's shocking to me with a, a between the state and a an organization, a medical services company called DocGo, which was already contracted to do COVID testing and vaccines. And now has somehow ended up with a uh, without any competition in terms of meaningful bidding for for this job, um, dealing with the food, medical care, case management, transportation, lodging, and security for migrants that are being shipped out of New York City, and they've have a four hundred and thirty two million dollar contract, which is just shocking. Four hundred thirty two million dollar. Just to underscore that. million no bid contract, as you're describing, to a company that has no experience in this exact area and whose entire revenue in the previous year, 2022, was the size of this contract. So you're asking this this company to like dramatically ramp up their operations in an area that they're not familiar with. This is scandalous. One could argue that COVID vaccine rollout is a very similar situation, but... Well, Anyways, I'll let that one go. Not to go down that rabbit hole, and and I don't <laughs> I don't believe in no bid contracts. Period, unless it's truly an emergency. At least in that case, we didn't have a meaningful comparison point, right? Like a, a, a pandemic by its nature is an emergency that comes up out of nowhere. Um, 
people crossing the border is something that many people have long predicted has been long an issue in the U.S. And by the way, this is not this company's expertise. Mm-hmm. This is a company that the, the mayor has had flattering things to say about. I think he's exaggerated their effectiveness in other areas, but certainly they're not equipped for this, Ricky, because if you read this article, right, it's peppered with one detail after another of how they're botching. Well, it. how could they even? Yeah. It's like asking them to be responsible for people for their entire lives. Like people who potentially don't speak the language, people who potentially aren't able to take a job because of their their asylum status. Like it's there's no world in which any private company can pull that off. Food, medical care, case management, transportation, lodging, and security. It's worth worth mentioning that back when uh, DeSantis was pegged as the first person to do the migrant busing. We talked about that, and we've talked about it many times since, because then Jared Polis was accused of doing it as a Democrat in Colorado, Abbott in Texas. What's fascinating to me is back then, we had you know not so kind things to say about Sanders, but we did say, hey, like you know, you could bend the, this a little bit, and it could easily be painted as a humanitarian move as opposed to a political stunt, which it appeared to be at the time. But if you go through all the criticisms leveled at DeSantis, which was that he was luring people onto planes under false pretenses, giving false promises, sending people to major cities, et cetera. If you go through this Jay Root article, nearly every element of what people were describing about what DeSantis was doing are true in New York. Mm -hmm. These people are being either lied to or being handled incredibly incompetently when they're being promised certain things like state IDs and not giving them, um, being told they're going to you know, get work and that they're going to have all these great conditions that don't pan out. In some cases, the people handling the, handling the security and care of these immigrants are threatening them. Like there was an incident where they were threatening them, uh, saying that if you drink or you do yada, 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 it could affect your migrant status, which is actually something that this group does not have the authority to do. So, you know, you, you can go through the details here if you're sort of a DeSantis skeptic as I am and say, well, all right, like on this case, if you were appalled by what DeSantis was doing, you have to be appalled by what Eric Adams is doing here. And I, and as a New Yorker, I'm particularly incensed about this because this is a city that has made more promises about how welcoming it would be to immigrants than any city on the planet and has a longer history of doing so. And it's completely botching this. Absolutely. And I think um, it's also worth pointing out that New York is trying to stem immigration at the border or stem migrants asking to come to the city at the border by what, in my view, is like the most humiliating flyer that the city could ever <laughs> produce about itself, um, that it's trying to distribute. Apparently, according to some reports, border agents and stuff are refusing to. But they they just put in place this new this new policy in the city that single migrants have 60 days to get out of shelter. And Eric Adams pretty much literally said, like, figure out where you're going to go from there. And they're, ha- they're handing out these flyers to migrants at the border saying, quite literally, don't come to New York. And they are essentially advertising how crappy this city is to live in, which is just kind of shocking to me. And considering that this is supposedly a sanctuary city, that these are people, many of them are asylum seekers who, I, I mean, New York City would just be night and day for them considering the conditions that they come from. Um, it, 
things that this flyer says include housing in New York City is very expensive. The food, the cost of food, transportation, and other necessities in New York City is the highest in the U.S. Like, so, okay, great. So you're just advertising your own incompetency and how out of control this city is, basically, as a way to get people to not come. Like, that's just humiliating. Yeah. Let's compare that with what is etched into the Statue of Liberty, which is a poem called The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. And it says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest uh, tossed to me. And so that's what our history is as New York. And now this flyer, it's like, if you ever need a one piece of information, just one thing to explain how New York has lost its soul, has lost its way. This flyer is it. Like, we should take down that Emma Laster's poem. Like, it's an embarrassment. Like, it's a lie. Like, it's it's something that we tell ourselves as a city. You know, people are sitting in the Upper West Side or in my neighborhood of Borham Hill like to sit around and, you know, think of themselves as liberal and welcoming. But, you know, we're electing leaders from top to bottom who don't believe what they say about it being a welcoming city and they've indicted themselves. Like even if, like, let's pretend this flyer didn't exist, but they're just, the flyer is true. This is a city that is not hospitable to people. Oh yeah. You know, it's not San Francisco. And and part of the reason why we're able to avoid San Francisco's fate is it's so big that just by sheer landmass places like East New York and the South Bronx and Park Hill can exist where people can live. And in some cases, New Jersey, which handles a lot of our, um, you know, new housing construction, like people are able to live in the outskirts of a city like this in a way that they can't in San Francisco for reasons we don't need to go into here. So it kind of saves us in a certain way. We also are living off of the infrastructure that people built a hundred plus years ago, like the subway system that allows the city to be more accessible. But you'd be you'd struggle to find anything that has happened in any recent memory that any politician has done to make this city more accessible to the downtrodden. And quite the opposite. This has become a city of elites. Most of the policies and practices that have been implemented over the past few decades have been more in favor in keeping um, elite places elite and spreading the gentrification of the city. And so I'll get off my soapbox just to say, like, this is an embarrassment as a a person who was born and raised in this city. This is a, you know, harsh acknowledgement of an embarrassing reality of this city. I think it's it's just really interesting to watch a lot of these people on the left who have the geographical blessing of not it, ruling over a border town or a border state to wake up to the reality and start sounding like the very, very bad, mean Republicans that they've been <laughs> dumping on for their immigration policy. And, you know, it's a little bit satisfying to see that now we're going to have to reckon with reality and maybe this is a way to stimulate some cross-partisan cooperation and how exactly we're going to fix our border crisis. Well, yeah, and one last piece of data, Ricky, which is um, in trying to predict what's going to happen at the border in the future, the there's this place called the Darien Gap in Panama. And it's it, you have to cross over. It's a very dangerous crossing that you have to cross over if you're going from South America through Central America into the United States. And the we've seen an influx of people crossing that thing called the Darien Gap recently in recent months. And so that tells us that some of this data could be lagging. So although I'm, I, I pointed out that there have been fewer border crossings, there are people 
making their way here in greater numbers than they were in the past. And so that could play out in the next few months. So if we look at the fall, uh, late summer and fall, you could see an increase in these numbers. Who knows? You know, maybe those people are heading elsewhere or maybe they're cut off in some of these processing centers. But if I were the Biden administration, I'd, I'd be keeping a keen eye on that, as I imagine they are. One issue that's near and dear to our hearts here at The Lost Debate is that of polarization. And I think one of the scapegoats that many of us point to um, in the kind of alternative media world is how social media supposedly facilitates polarization and rabbit holes and and us looking less and less like our fellow Americans. But there's a whole new body of research that just came out, um, a slew of 16 papers that have been published in both Science and Nature that are um, running up against that sort of theory and challenging it. They analyzed Facebook in the run-up to the 2020 election to see how it would impact polarization, extremism, and misinformation. Um, and they found that algorithms are little to blame when they went into different facets of the the platforms from like organizing the feeds in different ways to whether or not people were seeing reshared content. Um, and pretty much across the board found that it's not, certainly not, valid to say that this is all because social media is is pushing us into our echo chambers. Yeah, I, I, I found this this data fascinating. Obviously, there, there are a few places more reputable to publish data than science and nature. So on the face of it, this is very credible stuff, but I, I do want to pour, pour some cold water on it. Number one is the researchers were relying on data that was given to them from Meta itself, and they weren't given the raw data itself um, for privacy reasons. Uh, it's hard to make heads or tails of the implications of that. I think, too, is that this is about meta and not other platforms like, for instance, TikTok or YouTube and how those platforms may be polarizing people, Twitter, for example. Uh, and then I say third, and this is my biggest problem with this data, is that by and large, these are very short windows that they experimented with people. So, for instance, um, they removed all reshared content from feeds for three months and found that didn't affect their political attitudes uh, nor did moving into chronological feeds. And these three-month experiments to me are so limited because you're talking about people who've had years of habituation and polarization online, if you believe that the online communities are polarized, and then pulling people back during the height of an election season for three months and saying, well, okay, they're not depolarized, to me is like these Pavlovian experiments where you shock the rat so many times and it just stops eating the food. Like at a certain point, people, you could remove whatever you want, but three months is not a long enough period of time to undo years and years and years of polarization, or at least the study is limited. It can't tell you, it doesn't tell you enough. Like you can't run back the experiment and say, well, what would people be like if you didn't have those five to 10 to 15 years of online polarization? Agreed. But I think it's also important to talk about some of the specific findings here before I mutually pour some cold water on this too. But one thing that they did tinker with was the feed switching from like the algorithmic for you sort of thing to the chronological thing, which would be um, seeing, you know, the most recent thing shared by whoever you follow or, or friends with, I suppose, on Facebook. Um rather than, you know, what the the algorithm thinks that you will re react to or be the most outraged by or be the most likely to interact with. Um, and they found that switching to the chronological 
feed, which is what a lot of people who are concerned about polarization suggest might be a step to fight it, had exposed people to more political content um, and more potential misinformation, but had no change in political knowledge, attitudes, or polarization. So the whole, maybe it's the algorithm showing you the most outrageous thing, at least in the short period of time, did not pan out. Um, And another one that was interesting was resharing. So also trying to tamp down on like the, the viral posts that, that get outrage share or whatever and might, you know, radicalize people. Um, they found, again, no change in political attitudes, um, but that, you know, tamping down, resharing allowed people to be exposed to less untrustworthy content. Again, not entirely sure how they define that or misinformation. That's something that I'm a little bit I take with a grain of salt, at least. Um, and then also giving people a more heterodox amount of accounts and and people to interact with. Similarly, this is the most surprising one to me. Had no significant change in polarization, extremity, candidate evaluations, or their um, susceptibility to false claims. So basically on all fronts of the fixes that I think a lot of critics of social media propose, there's little evidence that at least in the short term, they would make any meaningful difference in fighting the polarization that we're experiencing. Yeah, what's fascinating is, you know, you try to dive into some of the explanations giving the argument about the chronological feed that's given is that the algorithm for meta downgrades what they believe is less trustworthy content. So when you remove the algorithm and just do a chronological, according to the explanations given by researchers, then the less trustworthy stuff is more likely to show up on your feed. Um, another interesting fact here is that in moving to chronological, people wound up spending less time, significantly less time on the platforms themselves. Um, and I think this gets to, I would love to see this data play out over years as opposed to months, because that's fascinating. If people are using it less and it's less curated by the algorithm, I imagine over like a significant period of time, you might see some surprising effects there. But, you know, again, the three months is just, to me, feels very short. Uh, they also had some interesting things to say about, like, what the left and the right are seeing on their their platforms. But I don't think any of that was too surprising. Well, one thing also, too, on the front of pouring some cold water on the time frame here that I think isn't addressed in these studies is we're also talking about adults that are more like entrenched in their beliefs. Um, also, in the lead up to the 2020 election, which could not be a more polarizing and bizarre period of time for people. Um, so I don't think that's really a reliable sample, but like, I think about like, sure, you can change an adult who already has a political set of beliefs. Like you can screw with their feed for three months, but what about kids that grew up with these platforms? And I think back myself, I mean, I, it was funny. I realized the other day that there was this like weird YouTube channel that had like little informational news videos that I watched religiously in middle school. And it like Anna Kasparian, the young Turks girl was who was who was hosting it with some other guy who's now also on the young Turks. And it's just it's funny looking back that I was politically informed by people who are like completely opposite to me. And I was completely naive to the fact that there was a political spin to these videos in the first place. So I spent a little while on the left and then I spent a little while on right wing YouTube. And like, it's, it's hard to even express how susceptible young people are to polarization as a result of these 
I don't know if it's necessarily the algorithms, but like the platforms themselves and the fact that you can go down rabbit holes and really not be at all informed about where your information is coming from or what the background or tilt of a person is. And so to me, I'm not satisfied in saying that like Gen Z, for example, isn't more polarized as a result of social media. Like I absolutely 100% believe that they are. And I am not remotely convinced otherwise by this data. Right, right. And I, and I'll direct people to this interview we did with Tim Urban uh, from Wait But Why about his book called What's Our Problem? And, you know, he posits a bunch of theories as to why we are where we are. And the book itself is worth reading. It's a really wonderful book. And, and it's worth mentioning that his thesis, my thesis, Ricky, I imagine yours, is not that social media is the capital T problem. It, I just think it is a problem. And I think it, you combine it with a bunch of other things that predated social media. You know, the polarization in our society you know, long predated social media. We, we've always been on the increase, you know, throughout you know, my entire life. You know, throughout the 90s, we were getting more and more polarized, for example. This is just one way to accelerate. You know, I think of technology in general as an accelerant to a lot of things. And in this case, it's an accelerant and the algorithms themselves are opaque. And, you know, by and large, no matter how people, you know, tinker with these things, the fact that getting rid of the algorithm and going to chronological meant people spent less time on these platforms tells you everything you need to know about the future of this, which is these companies will not make that change because it will lead to less money for them, less revenue. Mm -hmm. And they will find every reason possible to massage this data, to spin this data, to say the algorithm is in the interest of society, which is why we have to bring extra scrutiny when they make these claims. And I'm not saying that these scientists are in any way biased or anything like that. I just think that they're limited and they're getting played by Meta, who has a very particular interest and painting this data to say, hey, the algorithm is good because the algorithm makes them gazillions of dollars. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, as much as it's easy to drag these social media platforms or causing polarization, I think it's also necessary to like scale back and and realize that just a few decades ago, there was the evening news that was everyone's source no matter what period. And, and we are in like a kind of shattered age of information, but at least there's there are more options for people. There are more direct ways to engage with with political ideas. More people are invited into the conversation. And yes, that might be making us polarized, but in the long term, I think, you know, this is like akin to when the printing press came around and all of a sudden there's all these new ideas and people in in weird little like cultish idea groups that, you know, fizzled out in the end. But in the end, opening up the the conversation to more people, whether it's via these platforms that have side effects or not, is a healthy thing f- for pluralism and for for global democracy. And we're just having the growing pain sort of period at this point in time, in my opinion. Yeah, it's obviously why we do this show, why the branch exists, why the Lost Debate Show exists, is we want to bring people together to to do this sort of non-incendiary conversations that may not be preferenced by algorithms, but, you know, are more charitable and thoughtful than uh, what predominates. And so that's obviously like, this is central to what we try to do. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I'll be very interested to see what some of these people, like, you know, people you've talked to, like Gene Twangy, et cetera, have to say about this data, like these people who are skeptics, Scott Galloway, Jonathan Haidt, you know, 
you like when you know when you're going on these tours for this book i think people are going to ask you a lot about this even though the polarization part is not i think central to your book but i think it's it's a, it's a cousin of the arguments that you're making so we'll, we'll see i mean the people have a tendency to overreact to these the headlines are crazy like the same publications that have been writing about nonstop online polarization just read this data largely at face value with very little skepticism i'm like like can you just like you know, use a little, uh, temper yourself on both sides of this debate. Like, I feel like they just overreact to everything. Clickbait article incentive. The social media actually good now. It's like how people treat wine. Well, it's like if you try to Google the debate around whether chocolate and wine are good for you, you can literally read one study comes after another being like, wine is good for you. Wine is bad for you. You know, it's like, it's, it's crazy. And if you look at the data, it's, it's actually quite complicated, but by and large, it's always been bad for you. And it's like, but it's not as bad as they say it is. And it's certainly like they exaggerate the good. Well, Robbie, there was an interesting article in The Atlantic um, about the decline in church attendance, um, which starts with a very staggering statistic. Uh, 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in just the past 25 years, which is about one in eight people. And the question that's posed here is, what if the problem isn't that churches are asking too much of their members, but that they aren't asking nearly enough? Um, And basically an argument that the decline of community fostering institutions in general has expanded to churches that are no longer fostering community in the same way that they once did. I love that framing, by the way. I had a related conversation yesterday morning where I went on a walk with a buddy of mine, like my best friend who lives one neighborhood over. And we were talking about this this sort of shared commitment we've made to, as a group of friends, all meet on Sundays to have dinner. And my point to him was, it's not enough like part of what we need to do, and we were talking about like we had both been in Italy together and we were kind of comparing our sort of culture here in the United States to these small Italian villages that have tons of tradition. And what he was saying is, well, some of those traditions can be stifling. Like you always have to show up. And I said, well, I actually think that's a, an improvement on where we are right now, which is kind of the salad bar approach to commitment and community that we have right now. It almost would be more effective and more worthwhile if if we were radically committed. And I think of that when I think of the church experience, where it's like Catholics, I come from the Catholic tradition, which is famous, they call it Salabar Catholics. You kind of pick and choose what you do. I'm gonna play CYO basketball, but I'm not gonna show up to mass, for example. And I find this super compelling. Um, and this is the largest change in church attendance in history. And I think this, this writer, Jack Meter, does a really good job of kind of parsing through the kind of archetypes that he goes through in this piece of like different kind of people and how their practical issues get in the way of committing to a church. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, this is interesting to me as somebody who recently started going to church, like in the past year, um, I was raised going from time to time in a, like wear jeans to church, non-denominational, very casual, like rock music sort of new age situation. And I'm sympathetic to his argument in a sense, because I find myself gravitating now more towards a little more tradition and a little bit more buy-in. Definitely not the Catholic, you know, extreme of, ironically, my mom was a Catholic as well. And that was what she left because it was too rigid. And now I'm finding myself looking for something in the middle. Um, And I'm also seeing 
a lot of young people, um, kind of surprising young people that I wouldn't pick out as as friends of mine who are curious about looking into going to church again um, and a little bit of an uptick recently um, in not necessarily, I, I don't even know if it's a, a result of faith or the fact that they, um, they've, they've had some great awakening, but I do think that there's this like craving for community, especially for young people in cities that they don't really know how to find elsewhere. And I've been watching people tack towards church as, or, or faith, spiritual, whatever sort of organization that they can find as a a way to remedy that. Um, And I think that, you know, this Atlantic article is basically about the fact that these institutions need to rise to the occasion of the fact that people do want community and that, yes, it, it was expedient for them to be as permissible as possible and, you know, show up this time and maybe don't do this or whatever you want and wear whatever you want and do whatever you want and totally fine, totally cool. I think that I think that they do need to rise to the occasion of some degree of um, of structure and and of buy in because I think that that's what a lot of people feel as though they need, especially post pandemic somehow. Yeah, and and Meter I think does a pretty good job of going through. Uh, and he quotes this book that's it's a new book written by Jim Davis, who's a pastor of an evangelical church in Orlando, and this guy Michael Graham, who's a writer at Gospel Coalition, and they did a survey of more than seven thousand Americans. That was they drew on a survey that was conducted by a series of political scientists, and they basically found that the the movement away from the church due to the abuse scandals, which dominated m- neighborhoods like mine, which is almost one hundred percent Catholic, where I grew up, that that's already baked into the data, and a lot of the reasons why people have been leaving recently is more banal, and it's this sense of individuality that permeates American society. And I'm I'm with you that there is a course correction. People are searching for an antidote to the individuality and the isolation that accompanies it in American society. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated that. I think a lot of people came out of the pandemic already struggling with isolation and now struggling even more. Like I was somebody who ran communities. You know, Mickey, who's our producer here, the reason why we even know each other is because of the arena, you know. This group I started from around the country that was a community that brought people together. I was the kind of person who, before the pandemic, could not get by on a given day without like five different coffees with all these people and invitations to do this thing and that. And I came out of the pandemic as somebody who was probably in the one percentile of community and people around me all the time. I I live in the city I grew up in to now feeling like I've had like a 10x reduction in the amount of social interactions I have. And that even though I'm probably more above average, I'm significantly less social than I was before. And and that's coming from the high end. I can only imagine what people are dealing with who didn't have the same starting place. Yeah. I think like for me personally, I'm very much an introverted only child type. And like my social battery would be filled by going to college classes and maybe sitting next to someone and then I'd be ready to just come home. And it's <laughs> interesting in the pandemic, like I I distinctly remember this period of time. I've been living with my mom for for the first few months of it. And I came back to New York and I was living on my own. And I remember walking out of my door one day and being like, I'm feeling something that I've never felt before. And it was the sensation of loneliness because I'm such an <laughs> only child alien that I was like, huh, <laughs> I'm like longing for social interaction for the first time in my entire life. And like, it's it's, I think that there's also a whole swath of like, I think extroverts are way more 
outspoken about the fact that they felt isolated in the pandemic and they want to find a community and and we need to rebuild. But there's also the the quiet, introverted types like myself that I think for the first time feel like they need to grab onto external additional community outlets in a way that, you know, maybe work and a dinner with a friend once a week was enough for them. And I think it's a uncomfortable time, I feel like, for society. And I, I feel isolated. I know a ton of people who feel the same. But I think that this maybe is an important reckoning for us because we've kind of had to pull back from the rhythms that we were in pre-pandemic and now reevaluate what actually matters. What does it mean to be a member of your local community? What does it mean to be a member of your national community? What does it mean to be a member of your family or your church? And um, I think that this will potentially result in the rebuilding of of institutions in in general, whether it's church or whether it's like pickleball clubs, which I always see like young people in New York doing stuff like that, which I don't really remember anything like that pre-pandemic. Yeah. And I think the challenge when it comes to discussing this in the context of religion, which obviously historically has been the dominant community in so many places around the world and continues to be so in, in many places, is that if you don't buy into the belief system, you, and it's, belief is one of those things that you just can't make yourself believe. Like at a certain point, I was in, you know, in a Catholic environment and I just wasn't persuaded to believe it. And I couldn't make myself believe it, which always created some distance between me and the institutions. And so I think for those people, uh, you, the church is going to have a limited place, even though in, in certain places it's a cultural force. And certain religions are better than others about finding ways for people who don't buy into the belief to still buy into the culture. Um, like a lot of my Jewish friends, for example, are really good at that. But um, the the thing I've been thinking about a lot in this piece is this guy, this theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, uh, and apologies if I'm mispronouncing his name, where he talks about how we have this tendency, and I definitely fall into this, of wanting to make life hacks to try to solve certain issues of isolation or the certain personal wounds that people have in society and you know, like, you know, people in elite circles are like, all right, I'm going to like make time for deep work and I'm going to do meditation. I'm going to do psychedelics and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And what he says is the kind of solutions we need are radical. Like the kind of things that you need to do to break free from our lack of community and lack of ritual and purpose are would seem radical to people who uh, don't quite get it. And this resonates with me. I, I don't exactly know what it looks like in practice for me personally, but I do think that what he's saying makes a little bit of sense, which is like, you can't really tinker on this kind of stuff. Like, I think in order to truly embrace community and meaning, you might need to take big steps, not small steps. Yeah, I think that's especially true as the next generation of like adults coming of age uh go out into the real world as well because we were so entrenched in social media so early and that was how we supposedly were building community. But by virtually every single measure, that is just not the same thing and it's not an adequate placeholder for seeing friends and going out and interacting face-to-face. And I think that especially for young people, that needs to be a radical change. And I actually have a lot of faith that that will ultimately happen. I think that the iPad generation is even worse than the iPhone generation, which was me. And um, I think 
at a certain point in time, the the amount of devastation and loneliness and isolation and depression and anxiety that's just so evidently abounding as a result of the fact that kids are too online and too connected that way and not in real life will force us to a radical market correction on that front. So I hope it comes sooner than later. Yeah, it's funny. I've been reading and watching a lot of things related to people who've kind of taken radical steps. I mentioned this book called Dispatches from Pluto recently, where it's a British guy who moved to Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, which is really fascinating and related to this conversation. Um, there's this show on HBO called The The Biggest Wave or something like, well, The 100 Foot Wave. And in the most recent season, they talk, they kind of chronicle this family who lives in Hawaii. And they basically built their own kibbutz in school. And it's really interesting. And you can't watch it and not be like, wow, that's a great way to live. And then the most radical version of this I've seen recently is the show called The uh, the Last Alaskans, which was a show that had a couple seasons, I think, on something like Discovery, where it's like these people who move to the Anwar uh, Arctic refuge and live off of the land. And that's like the most, I think, when we talk about radical solutions, um, that is, I, I would say, the most radical. But I, that show is really fascinating. And I can't recommend it enough. But um, I've been kind of researching this for something I'm writing. And it's there are definitely some people out there who've, who've taken those dramatic steps. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached The Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Hey guys, love your podcast. It is exactly how I feel. Um, have a lot of Democratic, have a lot of Republican, uh, where I think in me, where I think there's a lot of good ideas. Um, I am curious why you guys are not uh, talking or discussing what's going on with Hunter Biden. Um, you know, I am not pro-Trump, but I definitely am pro-smoke where, you know, discovering smoke where there could be fire. And uh, I think you guys should be talking about it and discussing it. And um, anyway, hope you do that soon. Hello, nameless caller. I agree. <laughs> um, this is I've been campaigning for a Hunter Biden segment and it was going to happen today, but now it's happening on Thursday. So stay tuned. Don't worry. I've plenty of thoughts to offer, especially as a New York Post person. It's been an interesting uh, story to watch unfold. Well, uh, I'm excited about that segment. Um, for our listeners, thank you. Uh, and thank you for the voicemails. Keep sending those in. Um, you can send those in at 321-200-0570. Remember, again, to rate, review, and subscribe. Give us those five stars because that's what we're in this for. You know, we don't put ad- we don't put any advertising up here. We're a nonprofit organization. Your five-star reviews are literally the fuel I run off on a daily basis. Uh, And so send those in. Be really nice out there on the internet. Share it with your friends. And we'll be back with an episode on Thursday that will include, among other things, a deep dive into the president's son.